for listening to this sermon from Garden City Methodist Church. We want to invite you to worship with us each Sunday at 10.30 a.m., either in person or online. You can come to our beautiful sanctuary at 62 Varnado Avenue, Garden City, Georgia, or you can worship with us online as we stream our services at GardenCityUMC.com. One of the things we talked about at our onboarding session was that uh, we wanted to hear about the gospel. And so uh, this series is about the gospel, and we're calling it King Jesus to the Rescue. Now, a lot of times when we hear about the gospel, we think, um, yeah, I know all about that. I know the Roman road. You know, I'm a sinner, and Jesus died, and he rose again, and, he, and, and if we believe in him, then we can go to heaven, right? You know, accept, believe, and commit. That's the gospel. That's it, right? Why do we need to have a whole series about it? But um, the gospel is about more than that. It's not about less than that, but it's about more than that. The gospel is more than about how individuals can escape hell and get to heaven. It's the story of how God is rescuing the whole world through Jesus, our King. It's about more than individual salvation, and it culminates in the cross, but it doesn't start there. I like to say that the gospel is a lot like sweet tea. When I was in seminary, I went, uh, we, we went to Asbury up in Kentucky. Sarah Beth and I both went. And uh, Kentucky, God bless them, they think they're in the South, but you, they're not really in the South. And you can tell because when you go to a restaurant and order tea, they don't bring you sweet tea. When you say, I want sweet tea, they bring you a sugar packet, that's right. In fact, I, I worked at a diner when I was there, and uh, the, the owner was from Michigan, and she made this tea that was just gross. And uh, I always say, we ought to make sweet tea. And she would say, we got sugar packets on the counter. Why don't you just put sugar packets in your tea? Sugar packet plus tea does not equal sweet tea. Amen? That's right. You've got to brew it right. You've got to put the sugar in and plenty of it while the tea is still hot so that the sugar will melt into that tea and it will be good. In fact, when they were out of town one, the Williams were out of town, I secretly put sweet tea on special one time and it sold like hotcakes. Everybody, I was, it was Georgia sweet tea. I put it on the sign and people were drinking it up um, because we know that that. Just because you have some of the ingredients, that doesn't make sweet tea the right way. And a lot of times I think we hit a lot of the ingredients of the gospel. We put it together, and it is the gospel, but the gospel is more than that. I think a lot of times we settle for the Michigan tea version of the gospel when what God wants us to learn is the Georgia sweet tea version so that's what we're going to work at in the, in the coming weeks is what is the Georgia sweet tea version of the gospel? What is the full good things? We're not just talking about the ingredients slapped together so that we can say that we can go to heaven when we die. We're talking, we want the good stuff. And so we're going to look at the gospel in the month of August through the earliest gospel presentations in the book of Acts. 
we're going to look at how when they were explaining this good news for the first time in the early church, how did they present this message of salvation? And we're going to take the time to brew it right so we can get the full flavor of God's work in the world. And this week, we're going to start with Paul in Athens. And Paul took a trip to Greece as part of his missionary journey, and it says that he was in Athens, and he was disturbed because he was surrounded by all these idols. And he went and argued in the synagogue uh, about, about why are there all these idols around. And then, and then some of the, the Epicureans and the Stoics heard him in the synagogue, and they invited him into the town square to, to share his new ideas with the people in Athens and with the Greeks in Athens. And I had a joke all queued up about how one time I went to see my sister uh, march at UGA because she was in the, the UGA marching band. And so I know exactly what it's like to be in Athens surrounded by a bunch of pagans. But um, I decided uh, I want, I still want Debbie to like me, so I'm not going to tell that joke. But so the, these Stoics and these Epicureans, they wanted to hear more from Paul, and they invited to share this philosophy, and they, they love to stand around and argue philosophy all the time. And so they figured, oh, let's just get this one more guy to come in and argue his philosophy. But he started to share the gospel with them in a pretty unique way. And that's where we're picking up in, in Athens, or Acts chapter 17, verses 22 through 34. Here's what it says. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Oh, man, I butchered that. Aeropagus, I don't know. I'm just going to go forward. And said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. That, therefore, you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though he is indeed not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will have, judge, have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed, but others said, we will hear you again about this. At that point, Paul left them. But some of them joined him and became believers, including Dionysus and Aeropagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I love how when Paul shared the gospel with the Greeks here, he didn't start by weighing in on their cultural conflicts. 
right? He didn't say, well, you know, I, I'm here with the Stoics, and I think the Stoics have a better philosophy than the Epicureans, and, and he didn't weigh in on what was going on in the culture. He didn't berate them for the sin going on in their temples, even though we know he was disturbed by it because it says it earlier. But he didn't start off with the gospel saying, you're all going to hell, look at all this stuff happening in your temples. He didn't. He didn't insist that they follow the Jewish moral law. That's not the place where he started with these Greeks. Instead, he started out by pointing out all of the different ways that God was already at work in their midst. Right? He, he, he started out by showing how much grace that the Greeks had already received by this God that they didn't even know. Even, even if they didn't acknowledge it. He started by showing them how much better the one true God has already been to them than their false gods that they worshipped. And he, he has this whole litany of ways that God had graced the Greeks and God had graced the people in Athens. First of all, he said, God made you. He created you. Right? That's one thing he's got going for you. You would not be here if God hadn't decided to make you as the person that you are. What a grace for that. What, what grace that God did that by creating you in your mother's womb. He has the grace of not needing you. These Roman gods, they, they demanded sacrifice. They demanded food. They demanded um, loyalty or else they would starve. And so people were always feeding these gods with sacrifices. But he says God gives you the grace of not needing you. Have you ever had a friend that you loved but was just like extremely needy? Every time they came to you, they needed something. It's just like, I would love to spend time with you and just spend time with you and not need anything from you. That's what God is like for us. He wants to spend time with us, but he doesn't need anything from us. That's a grace that they had not experienced from the gods that they worshipped. He has the grace of being real. He's not made out of human hands. He's not, we didn't make God. God exists independently from us. He gives you life. So not only did he create you, he sustains you. Every day when you wake up, you experience the grace of God. Instead of always trying to trip you up or, or trick you or do any of the stuff that these pagan gods were always known to do, God gives you life. He doesn't take it. He allotted us a time and a place. And God put you where he put you on purpose. There's such a grace in that. There's, he says that God is not far away from you. There's the grace of a God who's close by. He's not some distant God. We don't have to beg him to pay attention to us. We don't have to uh, go and, and find him out in the heavens. He, he's not far away. That's a big contrast from the gods that they worshipped. He said, in him we live and we move and we have our being. They have the grace of having a God who is interested in their day-to-day -day lives, who is interested in them. 
who wanted to help them to live and move and have their being, even though they didn't know about him, even though they thought he was this unknown God, he was still at work in their lives. The last thing that he said, the way that God had shown grace to these Greeks is that he said, we're his offspring. He loves us because we're his kids. I don't know about you if you have kids or not, but I started loving my kids before I ever met them. As soon as I found out that Sarah Beth was pregnant with Ruth, it was like, well, I'm a dad now. I love this kid. She's so great. And that happened with each one of our kids. I didn't wait for them to be good. I didn't say, well, I guess I'll give them a 90-day trial period, and if this kid's not too bad, if they don't cry too much, and uh, if their diapers aren't too stinky, then I guess I'll probably love them. No, of course not. I love them at the outset. I didn't decide whether or not I wanted them. They're my kids. I love them. Even if they grow up and end up rejecting me and hating me someday and not wanting anything to do with me, I'm not going to stop loving them then either because they're my kids, right? That's how you feel about your kids, I'm sure. And that's why we believe that God gives grace to everybody. He created people because he wanted them. And he gives grace to people each and every day, whether they reject him or not, whether they ever know about him or not. We start with the belief that God has already poured out his grace on those folks. And he is not going to stop loving them or doing good things for them ever. And the thing that blows me away about how Paul approached this gospel presentation in Athens is that God, uh, Peter, sorry, Paul assumed that God was already at work in Athens. And he just had his head on a swivel to look and see what God was doing there before he ever showed up. He assumed that God was giving grace to the people of Athens before he ever arrived. And there's a theological term for that in Wesleyan theology. It's what we call prevenient grace. Prevenient grace is described as the grace that comes before. It's the grace that comes before salvation. It's everything that God does in our lives to sustain us and to keep us going and to show us that he loves us before we ever hear about him, before we ever come to respond to that grace. John Wesley in his wonderful, old-timey way of saying it, he said, all that is wrought in the soul by what is frequently termed natural conscience, all the drawings of the Father, the desires after God, that light wherewith the Son of God enlighteneth everyone that cometh into the world, showing every man to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with his God, all the convictions which his Spirit from time to time works in every child of man, that, is prevenient grace. It's described as, as the front porch of the house of salvation. Prevenient grace is, is the part of, of God's salvation house. It doesn't get you in the door, but it gets you up to the door. And everybody can receive it. And that is, that's a distinctly Wesleyan 
understanding of grace. God isn't stingy with his grace. He doesn't just give it to the people that he knows will accept him ahead of time. He lavishes it on every living person, inviting them into relationship with him. There are some theologies out there who believe that God only gives grace to those elect people who receive him. That unless you are one of the elect, unless you are one of the predetermined, predisposed people, that you don't receive grace from God, but all the elect receive all God's grace, and that everybody else is just destined for destruction. But I just don't believe that's what the Scripture teaches. It's not what Paul's talking about here. God is extravagant with his grace, extravagant with his love. He doesn't worry about loving someone who's going to reject him. He doesn't, he doesn't say, well, I just I don't want to be rejected, so I, I'm going to be careful and not put myself out there. He puts himself out there. He loves people anyway. It's like the parable of the sower. You know that parable. His sower sows his seed all over the place, and sometimes it falls on the path. Sometimes it gets snatched up. Sometimes it gets smothered out. Sometimes it grows, but he sows the seed everywhere. And the seed is the grace of God. God is extravagant with his love, and he is undiscerning with who he pours his grace out to. He gives it to each and every person. So you might ask yourself, well, if God's out here giving his grace to everybody all the time, if he's so extravagant with his love, then why do we need the gospel, right? Why not just stay ignorant of God? Why not just say, well, well, there's an unknown God who's given me grace all the time, and ignorance is bliss, and so I'm just going to keep on doing my thing and then just trust that God's going to keep giving me grace, right? Why not just do that if we all, all are the recipients of God's indiscriminate grace? Well, there's a few reasons, and we find it in this text. First of all, provenient grace, by definition, is the grace that comes before. But it's not the grace of salvation. Notice how, how Paul doesn't say, well, God's given you all this grace in all these different ways, so you're all good and don't worry about it. No. He says, because of this grace, you're being invited to respond. You're being called to repent and to get rid of your idols. The, the, the call to action is respond to this grace in obedience because a life in which we are living with Jesus in response to the gospel in, in line with the Holy Spirit is just better than a life without Jesus. Ignorance is not bliss in this situation. Repentance is bliss. And notice that they were all cool with, with all of Paul's gospel presentation. They loved hearing about all this grace that they were receiving until he started to talk about the resurrection. And they were like, well, that's impossible. People don't rise from the dead. You must not know what you're talking about. And so they rejected Paul. And I think that's important for us to cling on to because the gospel is powerless without a resurrection hope. Provenient grace gets us to the door, invites us to respond, but the cross and the resurrection get us through it. 
we'll learn in future weeks about justifying grace and sanctifying grace. But those are the things that, that bring salvation. See, if the gospel was all about just getting warm fuzzies and feeling good about ourselves and how much God loves us, then prevenient grace would probably be all we needed. There's a God up there that loves me. Hooray! But we need more than just to feel good about ourselves. Because of sin, we are destined to die. And there's not a thing any of us can do about it. And we need more power than good, warm feelings can bring us. The stakes are life and death. We need a resurrection hope. And if we're going to have that, then we need a Savior who can bring it to us. And that means we need someone to come to our rescue. The good news of the gospel isn't just that God will make us feel good because of his love, although he loves us and he gives us grace, and that does feel good. The good news of the gospel is that if we submit ourselves to his kingdom, then we will take part in Jesus' victory over death itself. and We will participate in a resurrection like his. So, Provenient grace is the good news that God is pouring out grace to all of us continually, whether we know him or not, whether we respond to him or not. But that grace is calling us to act. It's calling us to respond. So what do we need to know about this provenient grace? I think if we're Christians, a lot of times we can have this prideful idea that unless we show up, to bring God to the heathens, then God isn't at work. And I think we need to realize that, that God is at work already. When we get into the, to the mode of doing mission work, we can realize that God is already doing something in the lives of the people that we're talking to. By the time we get involved, God has already been lavishing love and grace upon this person for their entire lives. And so instead of thinking that we need to bring God or bring salvation to somebody, we can just look around and say, what is God already doing in this person's life, and how can I join in that work? It's a change of our perspective. Imagine showing up in a, in a place of conflict and knowing ahead of time that all of the sins in this room have already been forgiven. How does that change your outlook on a situation? Imagine meeting someone for the first time that doesn't know Jesus and knowing, boy, God woke this person up today. Jesus loves this person dearly. Jesus died on the cross for this person and is chomping at the bit to forgive them and to call them to love him. How does that change our perspective? And if you don't already know Christ, know that throughout your entire life, God has been loving you and pursuing you. He doesn't wait until we start to believe to start pouring his grace out on his children. He has loved you since day one, and he just wants you to respond and to love him back. He has so much more 
and this for you. He wants to share his victory with you. He wants to give his power to you through the Holy Spirit. He wants you to get more of him. That's what prevenient grace is all about. It's recognizing what God has already done and then joining in that work and responding to that work so that we can receive the full power of the gospel. One of the reasons that we practice an open table at communion is because we believe in prevenient grace, right? I, I believe that the communion table is a place where God is giving his grace to us all the time. It, it is a means of grace is what we call it. And because it is a way that God is giving out grace, I don't have the right to decide who gets to receive that grace and who doesn't, because I believe that everybody gets to have grace from God. And therefore, everybody is invited to come to the table, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you have whatever your hang-up is, who cares? God wants to give you grace, because God's in the business of giving out grace. And so today, we're going to take communion by coming up to this altar. We're going to try and spread out at this altar, make it safe. But you're invited to come and receive God's grace this morning, no matter where you stand. Because God is in the business of giving out grace to all of his children. And as you're receiving this grace from God this morning, I want to invite you to respond faith, respond in obedience, and respond by pouring out yourself to him. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we are stand amazed at your grace. We stand amazed that even in a place that was filled with idols, you are already at work. You are doing your business of drawing people to you and showing them who you are. Heavenly Father, do that business among us too. God, help us to keep our head on a swivel, looking around to see where you're at work and so that we can join you in that work. Help us to look back at our own lives to see the ways in which we have fail to recognize that you have been there showing us who you are, giving us your grace. Father, I pray that you will give us the courage and the grace to respond. Help us to be obedient, Father. In your name I pray.